Training a new missionary is a huge responsibility. It's one of the most important things that we were asked to do in the Barcelona mission. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9, Only take heed to thyself, and keep thy soul diligently, lest thou forget the things which thine eyes have seen, and lest they depart from thy heart all the days of thy life. But teach them thy sons and thy sons' sons. Keeping a tradition and a culture going from generation to generation is hugely important. You know, you're only ever one generation away from destroying something that could have taken a hundred or a thousand years to build. And so continuing that tradition of obedience and diligence was massively important. And that's why you saw a lot of guys in this mission work even harder as trainers than they did as just regular missionaries because they wanted to keep that culture going. And now that it was my turn to do that, I understood just how grueling that really was. This is Welcome to the Faro, episode 13, A Season of Change. And that change descended upon Albafete with a swiftness and a fury. There was a group of missionaries coming in partway through the transfer up in Barcelona. And unlike the time when that happened to me and Jarvis and Florence, there were seven of them. And President Watson was not about to create seven trios. So it was time for some emergency jumbling up all across the mission. And elders that had been prepared to train got their companionships just bucked. And uh, our companionship out in Albacete was one of them. Elder Evenhouse and I were together for most of two transfers. I think it was the fourth week of our second transfer together when the call came said, hey, guess what? Uh, we're doing some, some shaking up and Elder Bradley, you're going to train. As a result, we had to hurry our butts up from Albacete to Barcelona in about a day and a half. And uh, Elder Evenhouse had to pack up everything he owned. And we had to say quick goodbyes, go make the rounds, and say adios to everybody in Albacete. I was coming back, but he was getting transferred, I think, to Hospitalet, which was uh, kind of a, a bigger barrio of, of Barcelona. It's probably its own city. Um, you know, I never served there. I was only there for zone conferences and stuff so I didn't really get a feeling for the lay of the land I knew I was going to miss Elder Evenhouse he was diligent, intelligent he had a zeal for the work and after three months of being with Elder Gordon he helped me to sharpen my saw you know, get, get kind of focused again on some things that I had let slip by the wayside um, you know, a, a lazy companion really can infect you and, and give you some bad habits and I had, I had picked up a couple here and there mainly with what are the specifics on this like with with his ability to just kind of waste time I found myself doing little things here and there that kind of slowed us down and, and Evenhouse was good about setting the pace and keeping us working we also had a little tradition that we did every preparation day where you know after we went and did our grocery shopping we would um 
we'd make a tortilla de patata, which is a Spanish potato omelet. Only we would kind of do it in the American style. We'd, we'd grill up some chicken and throw some cheese in there too, some fancy Spanish cheese. And we got really good at it. You know, he'd, he'd do part of it, I'd do part of it, I'd do the flip. You know, we'd, we'd do it with our, our crappy kitchen appliances and stuff in, in Albacete, a, a bad frying pan and a bad lid. But we, we got it going pretty well. And we'd, we'd kill a few pounds of potatoes and chicken and eggs and cheese, and it was just amazing. Uh, we couldn't ever tell a Spaniard what we put into it because they'd get into big old fights over you know, what four or five ingredients are the only things allowed in an authentic tortilla. And, you know, I'd make a tortilla and throw ketchup on it just because, you know, hey, I'm American. You have potatoes, you have eggs, you can throw ketchup on that. That's fine. <laughs> Back in Saragossa, on one of the lunch appointments that Higley and I had with Abel and Maria Jesus, I suggested putting ketchup on the tortilla de patata once, and, and Maria Jesus, like, you thought that I would have, you know, blown my nose on the shroud of Turin or something. She was, she was not having it. <laughs> Later in that meal, when we go to have dessert and she's serving everybody up ice cream, before she puts ice cream in my bowl, she goes, "Oh, oh, hang on, you want me to put some ketchup on this too?" And I'm like, "All right, all right, I get it. You guys don't do ketchup on your tortilla here." But anyway, you know, I, I was going to miss Even House, and I, I decided, well, you know, I'll, I'll carry on some of these traditions when my new companion comes, when my trainee comes. Lo and behold, I wasn't able to make a half-decent tortilla without him. And I'd, I'd kind of gotten on the horn with him a couple of weeks later and, you know, mentioned that. I was like, you know, hey, I tried making a tortilla the other day and made a huge mess of it. It stuck in the pan. It sucked. He goes, yeah, man, same thing happened to me. So uh, it, was, it was cool to build up that tradition and that thing that we were able to share together and kind of bummed when it went, but that was fine. You know, that was, you know, it, it gave me an opportunity to, to build other good habits with, with my trainee. Now this is where the story gets a little bit adventurous. Evenhouse had to pack, you know, everything he had. I only kind of had to pack a small suitcase and an overnight bag because I was going up to Barcelona and then turning right around and coming back. But that meant we had to take the long two-hour train ride from Albacete to Valencia. And based on how the scheduling shook out, like we basically picked up, I want to say it was like a seven or eight o'clock train. Uh, and that took us about two hours and then we figured well if we walk to the elder's apartment in Valencia that's about a half hour and then we've got to pick up a really early train out of Valencia I want to say it was like five or six in the morning and so we, we'd end up walking half an hour to their apartment sleeping for a few minutes and then you know a few hours whatever but then trying to wake up, grab all of our stuff, and walk a half hour back to the train station. And I was like, well, why don't we just, you know, sleep in shifts or something in the train station? Okay, boom, brilliant, great idea. We were also really conservative with our cell phone minutes, just because those were were kind of limited. Um, you know, billing in Spain was was different than it is here. It wasn't just send to end on either end. It was, you know, if you took a call it didn't count against your saldo, against your, your credit for the months. But if you made a call, you got charged a full minute on it. And so, you know, we were, we were living on a really conservative plan. And so we were, we were kind of careful about, you know, how often we called the other missionaries because, you know, we, we tried to make sure that we always had enough minutes. We weren't overbilling the plan. Anyway, we didn't call the elders in Valencia. We figured we'd just sit at the station in Valencia Nord and uh, I would catch up on some of my letter writing or whatever. Well, wouldn't you know it, 
you're not allowed to spend the night in the train station in Valencia. They close it at midnight and they don't open the doors again until just a few minutes before the next trains are getting ready to load. The reason being that there is kind of rampant homelessness in a lot of these big cities in Spain and the vagabondos will kind of set up shop anywhere. Uh, you'll even see banks that have a what do you call it, like a, a pre-room, like you open one glass door and then you open another one and they do that to kind of regulate the shifting air pressure inside the lobbies. But, you know, they also leave open access to the ATMs all night, so the inner door is locked but the outer door is not. Well, when the weather gets nasty, you'll have homeless guys that just basically use that outside room as a tent. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll lay out their sleeping bags and they'll spend the night in the ATM room. Um, well, they don't want that in the train station, especially for security reasons, like you weren't supposed to take pictures inside the train station. This is still pretty soon after 9-11. They were really sensitive about you know, having information about transport hubs get digitized and all that stuff. So long story short, Elder House and I found out right around midnight that we were actually gonna have to spend the night on a park bench outside. We figured, okay, we'll we'll keep watch because one of us is going to have to stay awake because if if one if we both fall asleep, we're going to wake up with no luggage. It'll just get picked off by by pickpockets or thieves or gypsies or whatever. And uh, even house was a much heavier sleeper than I was, so I ended up staying awake for most of the night, sitting on a quiet park bench in the dark outside of the Valencia Nord train station, and it was great. It was kind of one of the greatest nights of my mission. There I was, an American boy, awake, while probably all of my friends were awake because there was an eight or nine hour difference between, you know, east coast of Spain and west coast of the U.S. Um, I, was, I was thinking about my friends and family back home. What are they doing? Wouldn't it be cool, you know, for them to, to know what I was up to? And so I wrote a couple of letters to different people. I probably even wrote a letter to Even House's sister. I didn't mention that, did I? That little sneak, he was he was hiding the fact from us that he had, his sister was hot. I hope you're listening to this, Mike, because, I mean, yeah, you know that. He had a picture of his family out one day, and a bunch of us elders were over at the apartment, and we were looking at it. It's like, uh, hey, Even House, you, you know that your sister's, like, incredibly good-looking, right? And he'd get really mad at us. But, uh, yeah, obviously nothing came of that, but... It, it was one of my favorite things about him, the fact that his sister was attractive and, and he could give me an in with her. He never did, greedy bugger. Uh, but yeah, I wrote letters to, to friends and family back home, and there was still a surprising amount of foot traffic all night long. And uh, one such group of, of foot traffickers, as it were, came along by us missionaries, and uh, it was a gr bunch of girls heading out to a club, a bunch of Spanish girls. But the, the girl bringing up the, the caboose of the group um, stopped and she she told her friends like oh hang on I'm gonna talk to these guys um, and I'm like oh crap here it comes somebody's gonna mess with the missionaries somebody wants to be like oh why aren't you out at a club you're young why are you wearing a suit and talking about Jesus meh, 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 meh. and you know you'd, you'd kind of gotten used to that you knew how to just kind of shoulder it and dismiss them and they'd eventually leave you alone well it's a little bit different when it's a, a hot athletic muscular club girl who uh, you know she's wearing tight jeans and a, and a British flag halter top. She had kind of darker skin and she had this accent that was just mesmerizing. She's like, hey, what are you guys up to? And Elder Evenhouse was asleep. And, and so I'm like, you know, we're, we're missionaries. We're, we're moving from one city to the next real quick. And 
she switches to English. She goes, wait, you're American. I said, yeah. And uh, so she was giving me the quick rundown of her story. She was originally from Russia, but like one of her parents was British and one of her parents was black, but I couldn't remember if like she had a, a black British parent or a black Russian parent. Anyway, I mean, she was, she was a mix of a whole bunch of things. She was really, really beautiful. Uh, I think her name was Nikita. And she's like, yeah, you know, when I was in, in uh, Britain, I, I talked to the missionaries, made great friends with them, never joined the church or anything, but, you know, always had a lot of respect for what you guys do. It's really cool. And I was like, oh, okay, great. You know, and so she's like, yeah, okay, I got to go catch up with my friends now, but, you know, good luck on your mission. And she walks off and I'm like, did that really just happen? I mean, holy cow. I ended up later basing a character in a book off of her. It was pretty cool. But uh, the night rolled on and the, the dawn came. And I woke up Elder Even House and we got our stuff. We headed back into the train station and we started the slow coastal crawl from Valencia up to Barcelona. That's about a three hour ride. And from there I finally got some sleep. Now the train stops several times on these voyages. One such stop was in Castellon, also on the coast. And uh, I heard a familiar ringtone. You know, the, these mission phones all have the same ringtones or else you can also program the there's like a song app on there and you can program it to play a hymn. And so, you know, we did that a lot and then we'd, we'd send the ringtones around to everybody else. Anyway, I heard one of these hymns a few rows up from us and I, I stood up and it was Elder Florence. He was also in this training group. Turns out Elder Jarvis was going to be as well, along with uh, Gilbert and Westenhofer and Rojas. And I want to say there was one more, but I can't remember exactly who. It was a couple of guys from the group before mine and a couple of guys from my group. But like I said, there were seven total of us. Here we were, you know, more than a year after our missions, heading up to Barcelona to train. In this whirlwind adventure, we did have a little bit of time to go exploring around Barcelona. So I, I went on a quick exchange with Elder Jarvis and we, we ran some errands. I think he'd been in one of those areas up there. So, you know, we saw some people that you know, he wanted to check in on. We went down to the docks and uh, didn't do anything, you know, too much more extensive than that. Uh, I remember we all kind of posed by the docks and saw the Christopher Columbus statue that they have on the, on the big pillar out there. But the important part was the night before we got our training assignments, we went into the mission home and we had a, a meeting together with President Watson and he gave us some training on on how to train and, and how important it was and you know all of the things that I'd kind of you know seen from my trainer and from other trainers in my district mainly that you know you, you, you've got to really stick to the schedule you got to help them establish the habits that you've established and understand that it's not just an osmosis thing they need to live it and where they pick it up from is is their trainers um, I do remember we had this whole meeting in Spanish because one of the elders in our group was from Argentina and, and uh, while a lot of the native Spanish speakers were working on learning English, learning English if Spanish is your first language is a lot harder than the other way around. And uh, you know some of the guys picked it up a little bit, you know, pretty much everybody picked it up at their own pace. I don't want to say that he picked it up slower, but uh, you know, if there was if there was one Spanish speaker in the room, we would pretty much always speak Spanish. You know, even we would even have you know entire zone conferences that way if we could. Uh, I just remember, <laughs> President had served his mission in in Mexico, and he was really proud of his Mexican accent and had kept it. And 
<laughs> Tienen que enseñar a sus hijos. Like he just had this this super Mexican accent. It's hard to describe without going off in too much detail about it. But you know, we all got the message. We took notes, and uh, you know, we we went and hit the sack. And the next morning, our, our trainees showed up, and they were just about as disheveled and exhausted as Florence and Jarvis and I had been because it is a thirty-hour grueling haul to get from the west coast of the U.S. over to the Iberian Peninsula. And come to find that this group of elders had gone through pretty much the same thing that uh, the rest of us had. I say the rest of us. I, I, I really mean Jarvis and Florence because, you know, we were the part of our group that had gotten, you know, visa-weighted and all that. Um, my trainee was a guy from Littleton, Colorado, named Alex Rothy. Um, you might have heard of Littleton, especially if you're around my age. It's where Columbine High School is. Um, looking at the timeline, consider the fact that I was a freshman in high school when that happened, and Elder Rothy was about a year younger than I was, and he was in the middle school kind of down the street from where that happened, but he was only in eighth grade. So, yeah, he still remembered that happening like to his community. Yikes. He had taken some Spanish in school prior to his mission, so uh, you know, kind of like me and Elder France, he and I didn't have to spend too much time you know, working on, on language study because he had, he had a really good grasp of it. He also had had two months in the MTC and then ended up as a visa waiter in California, like myself. Uh, you know, so there was a little bit of stateside work there, and then you know, the, the visas came in, they, they got transferred partway through to kind of clear things up in those stateside missions and get these guys to, to their assigned mission, and so here we were. Now we had to make a whirlwind trip back to Albacete, and this is where things got interesting. We, we went from Barcelona down to Valencia, and then from Valencia, the next train that we could catch to Albacete that would get us there on time was what was called a, a Tren Hotel. Um, they had regular you know, passenger seats on there, but you could also you know, like get uh, a room that had a bed if you wanted to sleep and were going a long distance. They, they run these trains in the night um, you know, we weren't going to pay for, you know, one of those bigger rooms, but we go and sit on these, these comfortable padded chairs and, um, without really meaning to, you know, we, we both kind of pass out and, uh, you know, head into the night cause we've been so exhausted. Remember I stayed up that entire freaking night in, uh, in Valencia. And this was before I, I used caffeine to cope with my sleep deprivation. So I was still kind of on that organic sleep cycle. Um, there were plenty of stops between Valencia and Madrid, which was where this, this train ran. But remember that we are not supposed to leave the boundaries of our mission. This train would stop, I want to say it ran through Chativa, or did it? I want to say that there was a stop between Valencia and Albacete. It would stop in Chativa, Albacete, Ciudad Real, and then maybe Cuenca before it went to Madrid. I could be forgetting which cities, but the important thing was is that it had five stops, including Madrid and Valencia. And uh, all I remember is, is Elder Rothy you know, tapping me on the shoulder saying, hey, you know, is, is this our city? 
and I'm looking out and it's like one in the morning and it's pitch black outside and I can see just outside the window that we're on train tracks and the tracks are moving and I thought oh, okay cool we're slowing down perfect and uh, I asked somebody next to me I was like donde estamos que ciudades oh this is Albacete okay perfect we get up we grab our suitcases we go and stand by the door waiting for the train to stop the train doesn't stop oh crap so we wait a minute to find somebody from Renfe, the train company. We ask him, like, hey, you know, the, we were supposed to get off in Albacete, but the train didn't stop in Albacete. And they, they go, so, yeah, it, it didn't stop because nobody pushed the button. They're like, oh, yeah, we've never done the night train before. We didn't know we were supposed to do that. And he goes, okay, what you need to do is get off in Ciudad Real and buy a ticket to come back. Like, oh, fantastic. So this trip that was supposed to be done by now just got two hours longer. And I ended up having to call the Ayudantes and wake them up in the middle of the night. And they got to call president. I'm like, no, please don't call president. Just give me a decision. And uh, they said, yeah, just see what you can do about swapping your tickets. Because we had to worry about the cost of reimbursements and stuff like that. I didn't want to run that up. But we got off in Theodore Real. And fortunately, uh, this, like I said, this was a circuit. Uh, fortunately, the train that runs east was stopping in Ciudad Real at the exact same time as the one that goes west. And we were able to jump off onto the platform and, and jump right onto the other train. By the time we got back to Albacete, poor Elder Rothy was practically falling asleep on his feet. I think one of the wheels had broken off of his luggage or something. Like it was just one of those typical missionary stories that you read about where you're exhausted, but you get it done. And it was it was good to go through that experience because learning how to do that, to cope with it, and just accomplish was was something that would serve me well for the next several years. But we got in around, I want to say it was like 4 a.m., and it was Sunday, and we had to, uh, to get to church, and I had decided, yeah, maybe we'll just go to sacrament meeting and come home because we needed to be there. And uh, we got a call in the morning from the Ayudantes, wanted to make sure we got back to Albacete, that everything was good. We said, yeah, sure, everything's fine. And uh, they said, oh, by the way, um, maybe you guys could just, like, take today off and get caught up on sleep. Don't, don't work yourselves to death. And I'm like, oh, yeah, don't worry. That's, that's definitely going to happen. So we got settled in, and that was how uh, I got to know my new companion, Elder Rothy from Colorado. The first thing he had to get used to was anybody from South America pronouncing his name Rossi because they assumed that the lisp was why they he pronounced his name that way even though he'd, you know, he'd show him his name tag and no, it's, it's TH, it's the, it's an English name but any time we were dealing with you know, Equatorians or Hondureños or whatever it was, it was like, oh no, uh, it's, it's Rossi, it must be Rossi and so I'm like, dude, just let it happen Half the people we know can't even say my name. They thought my, my last name was like Briley or something. They, it, the, the D and the L like that was apparently uh, you know, hard to pull off in Spanish. The second thing he had to get used to was me. I mentioned the, the uh, color-coded personality test that we would take later in, in, uh, in another zone. But I'm going to mention it now, what our results were, because for the next... 14 weeks that we were together we were companions for the rest of that transfer plus two more after that for the next 14 weeks um, we we clashed pretty frequently I wouldn't say that it came you know, to the level of, of fighting or arguing or anything like that I could just tell 
that he didn't really like me that much. He didn't get along with me, and uh, you know, I, I didn't realize that it was it was more a personality difference and the fact that you know I just I just acted in ways that he didn't like, and I, I found him to be you know really too passive or docile at times. Well, when uh, when the zone leader had us you know, take this uh, color test at the beginning of a of a transfer later in the spring. You know, it tells you which which color traits are predominantly yours, but it also has a graph on on which people you're more likely to get along with and which people you're more likely to have a hard time with. And whatever his breakdown was, it was it was pretty much the polar opposite of mine. And I realized I'm like, oh man, this makes a lot more sense. And uh, you know, not to put people in in boxes or whatever, but it it was it was useful for helping me to understand why. Why he and I like you know hadn't necessarily gotten along or become friends the way that that I had with some of my other companions. It wasn't really coming from a place of animosity, just that we were we were very different people and we had very different styles. And so you know the unifying thing was, as always, you know our our calling and and the fact that we had to work on it together. It was also interesting hearing about his family situation. Um, his parents were divorced and both had remarried. His his mom and stepfather, I don't think, were, were active. Um, his father and stepmother were. He had, I think he had half-siblings kind of on both sides. No, maybe it was just his, uh, his sisters. So he had, he had two biological brothers and, uh, you know, two full brothers, I guess, and two half-sisters. And uh, he would joke about how he was, he was step-black. He, his, his stepmother was, uh, was black. And... Uh, so he would like claim the privileges there too and stuff. He was always wearing a hat with like the bill kind of cocked sideways. <laughs> like you're just, he was a character. And uh, you know, I, I learned a lot from him, uh, especially going back to the whole quiet dignity thing that President was you know, constantly emphasizing on me because you know, Rothy had it in spades. He was, he was very composed. I wouldn't go you know, so far as to say that he was you know, preppy or stuffy or anything, but he did always carry himself with with dignity and he was a, a constant reminder of that and a very good example of it so i you know I was, I was grateful for his companionship and for the things that i was learning from him pretty quickly that isn't to say either that he uh, didn't have a sense of humor uh it tended to be kind of a more dry sense of humor um the winters in albacete got really really cold and you know he being from denver area was used to that me being from vegas area i was not and we had an apartment that was you know, heated with radiators, and so it was, it was slow and inefficient. And so we'd wake up in the morning, you know, cold and exhausted. We had two couches in our living room, and so we each took one, and we each took one of the coffee tables. We'd have our study materials on that. Um, later, it kind of became a mission rule that you were supposed to sit on a hard chair at a hard table to study because it would keep you awake. But, you know, when you're cold and tired, you want to sit on a comfy couch. So our companionship study would start, and we're sitting there, you know, under our, our blankets on our different couches, and we, we say a prayer, we sing a hymn, and then I sit back and I'm just like, ugh, I'm exhausted. You read me something for, for study this morning. And he, he looks around, and he sees his, uh, his custom-embossed hymnal on the table in front of him, and he goes, Elder Alex Rothy. <laughs> That's all he says. It's not that funny. I guess you had to be there. Now, we, we also had some early success together as companions in, in terms of mission work because we were still teaching 
Oscar's friends, Carlos and Daniel. Um, you could tell that Carlos was starting to gain a real desire for a relationship with God and, and for you know, the, the good spiritual things that came from that because he was having a hard time in Spain. They weren't really finding work. They, they kept finding grunt work where you know migrant laborers were allowed, where they were getting you know underpaid and stuff. Um, in the summertime, it was you know, harvesting grapes. In the wintertime, it was harvesting olives. But we were teaching them, and we'd set a baptismal date for, for Carlos, and you know, we, were, we were able to baptize as, as a companionship. It's um, important to always be baptizing. You, know, you, you always want to be constantly bringing people to the gospel, to, to Jesus Christ. But it's especially important to baptize with your ehos with your trainees for the same reason that it's important to teach them good discipline and good scheduling habits and all that stuff you want to help them understand early on that the work does succeed here you know, things things get done the church is is succeeding you wouldn't necessarily say that it's booming the way that it was in the early 1800s in in, uh, you know, in the americas and all that but I'm, I'm glad that Carlos got baptized, decided to get baptized while, uh, while Dorothy was there. Tell you what though, that baptism was a headache. The font hadn't been turned on in a couple of years in Albathete, and when it did, the water came out all rusty because of the pipes. So we had to clean all that out, and then it was a headache trying to find baptismal clothing because we couldn't remember who had it. We had to you know, find some and get it brought in, and then Carlos and Oscar were an hour late to, to the baptism and I remember like just kind of sitting there waiting, waiting, waiting and you know, being being concerned whether they were going to show up at all, constantly texting them. Suddenly I was less worried about the monthly minutes on the phone and you know, hey, where are you guys at? Where are you guys at? I remember sitting outside of our little rundown chapel in Albathete you know, wearing my, my baptismal whites because I was going to be the one to baptize him. And, uh, the, you know, the water was stupid freezing cold. And uh, we, we finally got there. We got him changed. We got baptized. We, we baptized him and, you know, gave him the Holy Ghost and gave him an opportunity to share his testimony. And, man, he lit up. You... He wasn't one given to emotional outbursts, even though he was a pretty jolly guy, Carlos. But you, know, you talk about seeing a light in people's eyes and the smile on his face and how happy he was progressing. And he just thanked everybody who had helped him with his, his reading and all that stuff. And I'm fine with him showing up an hour late uh, if it means that that he gets to make that covenant with God. It was it was incredible to, to be a part of that, to see a man you know, make that covenant and, and work towards his, his salvation and his exaltation in that way. October would wrap up with uh, Angelita saying, hey, ¿por qué no tenemos una fiesta de Halloween? She wanted to have a little Halloween party, and so uh, I had like a little Superman cape that I threw on and Rothy threw together this makeshift Nephi costume and uh, you know we met up with Angelita and them and you know watched a, a Disney movie or something and then you know got back to work but that was that was a much 
smaller deal over in Spain. They didn't they didn't make a big deal out of Halloween, but I just remembered where I had been a year before having Halloween in Santa Ana with the missionaries there, uh, you know, from the Anaheim mission. Uh, but the bigger news was that president was adding a fifth novel to the novel program. Um, you know, he wanted to make sure that we were we were staying engaged and familiar with the material in, in the new Preach My Gospel manual. And so as part of this new novel, you know, obviously we had to go back and put together outlines and stuff for the, the new lessons, the way that they were structured. But each of these lessons had dozens and dozens and dozens of scripture references in them. A lot of them were the old OPUs from the Charlas. But, you know, if the old Charlas used 250-something, this one used probably twice that. And the new level was you have to take 100 passages of Scripture, not just, you know, individual verses, but 100 passages, and memorize them verbatim in Spanish. And, man, I was revved up to do this. So I started putting together a list a lot of them were passages that I was already familiar with. Um, you know, you, you remember tidbits of them from the OPUs, but I wanted to remember the, the real verbatim language of the scriptures and, and do it that way, pulling from all four of the standard works. And uh, I decided that, yeah, I was going to tackle this. It was going to be a big deal. And if, if you reach this level five, it wasn't just, you know, props and recognition at Zone Conference, as well as, you know, the ability to dominate in the Charla game, um, President was also going to buy you a sword, like a legit Spanish hand-and-a-half sword, and it would have uh, the Sword of Laban engraved on, on the blade. So I was 100% there for that, and I immediately started hunkering down and, and working on that. It would take me a couple of months to get it, um, just because, wow, a hundred passages. At one point, I had the first 12 verses of the Book of Enos memorized in Spanish, word for word. I did it the same way that I did the OPUs. I, I wrote up my list, I would write them out by hand, because just the act of writing them out kind of got me familiar with them, and then I would carry them around in my pocket, and I would quiz myself during the day in between contacts. You know, I would have Elder Rothy quiz me, but I, I got underway on that. I was really excited to have another way to, to push myself because, yeah, having the new PMG manual was great and having to familiarize myself and make outlines for those lessons was great. But I, I found that I was kind of missing something without that structured program, uh, you know, having, having beaten the Novells before the halfway mark of my mission. And so President adding that fifth level was, was awesome. So in closing... The second year of my mission was fully underway. I was a trainer. I was about to become a district leader again, but I'll save that story for, uh, well, I say again, a, a district leader in earnest, but I'll save that story for next week. My brother was home, and uh, all of a sudden I was, I was on kind of the, the downward curve of my time in Spain. Um, I knew what I was doing as a missionary. I still had plenty to learn. I didn't have any misgivings about that, but I didn't feel like a fish out of water the way that I had for, for a lot of that, that first year. I felt like I, I was able and ready 
to live up to the responsibility that had been given to me in that distant city of Albacete. And it was, it was a humbling feeling. It was an empowering feeling. And I was, I was grateful for the chance to serve in that capacity. So fret you not. I still haven't shared all of my really great stories. There is always more to come. But I will save the rest for next week. Until then, you guys know the drill. Keep the faith.